Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. And the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For do not men gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me 
Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations in the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Amen. May God add his own blessing to that reading of his own precious word. Well, we can continue this evening, as it says, with questions asked. And importantly, it's not only questions Jesus asked, but it's questions that he asked his disciples, those closest to him. It may have been, of course, that there were loads and loads of others in his hearing, but principally, these uh, questions are addressed to his disciples. And as such to us, as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, as we're trying to ship, explore, so Jesus speaks to us today as his disciples. But to lead into this, I recently came across a parenting survey. And one of the questions asked in this survey was this. Should children be taught to do as they are told? Should children be taught to do as they are told? Be interested, but I won't ask what the response <laughs> of the gathered company is. Amazingly, only 12% of people answered yes. That's one eighth of the people surveyed in this parenting survey, came up with the answer, yes. And this, I'm told, the previous survey, some five years before, the percentage was as high as 42%. So in that period, there's been this enormous drop in the desire of parents, or in the agreement of parents, to teach the children to do as they're told. And you wonder how such lack of training is going to serve these children in their later years as they come face to face with structures in society, uh, with officialdom in many ways. They will have to learn once again, and perhaps even in their later years, what it means to do as you're told. Sadly, of course, we see in society of people rebelling. Even children today, I don't have to go to school. You go to school this morning. No, I don't have to go to school. And it feeds through. If you speak to school teachers, you find that the level of response in schools is, I don't have to do this, miss. I can go home and do whatever I like. And so this is a big problem. And it raises the question, as we were considering Sunday morning, who's going to tell me what we considered Sunday morning? Anybody? Okay, won't embarrass you. We were looking at obedience in Christ, weren't we? Paul writing to the Philippians, talking about always obeying. So we're going to look tonight at another question, just to remind ourselves of where we are now. little controversy here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 
give the Sermon on the Mount and the passage we read is described as the Sermon on the Plain by Mr Begg in his little book, Christian Manifesto. If you look at um, verse 17 of chapter 6, we see this. Verse 17, And he came down with them from the mountain, obviously, and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea. In the Matthew passage, that of course begins with, and seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on the mount and sat down and began to teach them. So these are obviously two separate occasions, possibly, we don't know. It's not really of uh, great materiality. But what is of important is the teaching that we find in both these passages. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is going to be up here somewhere uh, in Galilee near Karazim, as the map there shows us. So, there we just took a quick note of some of the distances that Jesus travelled during the course of his ministry. But the question for us this evening is, there, found there in verse 46, this is addressed to his disciples primarily, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? This is a very searching question, isn't it? He's speaking to his disciples, they've been following him, we don't know how long, how far into the ministry this is, but he's speaking very directly and very personally, isn't he? How do you, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not the things I say, and this raises, doesn't it, in our hearts two immediate issues. The issue that we've just been talking about, the issue of obedience, and secondly, the issue of commitment. What is our obedience and what is our commitment to the Lord? Are we willing to be obedient to his sayings? And in being obedient, are we committed to that course of action, to that level of service? Well, we may just briefly compare Matthews 5, 6 and 7, which we know briefly as the Sermon on the Mount, and the same message in many ways. It took three chapters in Matthew, uh, but in Luke, Luke presents it to us, uh, perhaps in summary form, uh, in just 30 verses, something like that. Luke 6, verses 20 to 49, which we read together. And both accounts, we take notes, both accounts begin with the Beatitudes, not in exactly identical words, but the same thoughts are expressed, and both end with the parable of the two builders. Both accounts, we see, contain warnings against hypocrisy. What does Jesus say there in verse 42? Um, you hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Is the Lord here accusing his disciples of hypocrisy? Because there are, in both those uh, passages, warnings against this. 
what Jesus Christ is saying to them at that time, your actions do not live out the words of profession. Your actions do not live out your words of profession. They call him Lord, Lord, but their actions betray their words. So, we went back to Isaiah 29, verse 13. We see, and I'm sure many of you will understand, that this problem of hypocrisy was not one reserved for the disciples in the New Testament, but had been one of the problems that Israel faced throughout its entire life. Isaiah 29, verse 13 says, Inasmuch as this people draw near me with their lips and honour me with their mouths, but have removed their hearts far from me. Jesus is bringing out the hypocrisy that there is in the lives, in the hearts and in the minds of his own people. You see, what we read as we read, wanted to be like the nations around. They wanted to uh, practice the things that the nations around practice. That Yet the people of Israel still wanted to come to the service to God on the Sabbath because of many different reasons. And so there was much hypocrisy there in the nation of Israel. And this sets the scene, if you like, for the whole of Jesus' teaching concerning the hearts of men. As we said, I think, last time, the enduring theme all the way through these questions that we find, the enduring theme is Jesus examining uh, the relationship of his followers, the deep spiritual personal relationship that his followers have with him. He's trying to draw out of them and to show to them what is the cost of following Jesus Christ and to be his disciples. So in Matthew, 27, verse, in Matthew 7 verse 27, we have that uh, terrible uh, illustration of people that came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, in thy name have we not cast out demons and done all these wonderful things. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. And this is a real issue, isn't it, today for us to consider because we do do many things in the name of Jesus Christ. We do do many things representing Almighty God. And yet it's a question, isn't it, for examining our motives, examining our hearts, examining uh, how we look at our responsibilities, how we look at our duties as born-again Christians. And sadly, isn't it, this um, hypocrisy is still found so much in the professing church today. So if we examine some motivations, perhaps we'll see some of the reasons that, uh, although people perhaps wouldn't admit it, some of the reasons why uh, they are professors. You see, perhaps some people like to be seen, have always been brought up in many ways, put the best clothes on on Sunday, we don't. This is talking 20 years ago now. But people used to put their best clothes on, even describing them as their Sunday best. And they would tuck their Bible under their arm and walk out to church so that uh, the neighbours would see what good, moral, godly, church-going people they were. I'm not fantasising. This was the case so many years ago. Others would come and say, tradition dictates that we go to church on Sunday 
and so many hundreds of thousands over the centuries have observed Sunday out of a sense of tradition. And I'm sure it's still the case because there are people that come to church on Easter Sunday, there are people who come to church on, for the Christmas carol service, some even come on Christmas Day uh, because they have some tradition, something that in their background that says these are days you should go to church. They haven't a clue as to the real meaning of Easter or the real meaning of Christmas, uh, but because it's right we go to church on Sunday. Or perhaps people come because we were taken by our parents and now we take our children. It's certainly the right thing to do. Perhaps we feel that we can build up some credit with God. We can build up a fund that uh, will stand us good in the day when we have to give an account. Or perhaps as we look around at the churches there are those who profess and come to church because they hope to gain some reputation or some standing within the church. You hear today of career ministers, career ministers, always looking for the next opportunity, always looking perhaps to take on a bigger church, to gain a name, uh, to gain a reputation. It's anathema, I think, in many ways to the true believers, to true churches, to true ministers. Christian ministry, of course, is a calling. It's not a career, it's a calling. And alongside that, we can look at the prosperity gospel preachers uh, and those who uh, set up organisations that uh, add more and more wealth to their own situation to build up their own bank balances. So there's a variety there of motivations perhaps why some profess Christianity, why some profess the name of Christ but have no, uh, no interest in taking the matter any further. So hypocrisy then is Satan's principal device in undermining the work of sanctification. We can't grow in the knowledge and love of our Saviour if we're still wholly committed to the things of this world. Here's a quote for you. Hypocrisy is the only evil that walks invisible. But that's not where the quote ends. Except to God. This is a quote from John Milton, the Puritan poet we know for paradise lost and paradise regained. Hypocrisy is the only evil that walks invisible. You can be a hypocrite, no one around you will have the slightest idea of what your mind is, what your motivations are. The only person who does know deeply is God himself. So perhaps contained in this question are these warnings. Perhaps contained in this question is the duty of us to examine our motivations. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And we note here also, don't we, that both the passages, uh, the five, three chapters in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and the passage here we read together, both of these parables contain the parable of the two builders. 
And surely it underlines, doesn't it, that true faith that produces true obedience and true commitment must be built on a firm foundation. This is what Jesus is saying here. To be a true Christian, to hear what I'm saying and to do what I'm saying, you need to have a faith that's built on firm foundations. And we often sing this hymn. And there's such great truth in this hymn, in the words of even just this one verse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This brings out the great truth. And the other verses in that particular song bring out the great truth that genuine faith, true faith, is founded on the rock which is Christ Jesus. So, to put those words into actions in our everyday lives is perhaps one of the greatest challenges we face in our daily Christian walk and witness. If we're going to do the things that Jesus calls us to do, if we're going to be those genuine followers of Jesus Christ and then as we say we face this challenge but if our faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness then surely we can hope to be those good and faithful servants well faith based on our own abilities of course and this is the warning that Jesus is giving here in Luke chapter 6 in the picture of the man who built his house upon the sand or upon the earth based on our own abilities that faith will fail in the time of testing as the uh, parable suggests words now here's an interesting thought words even very very eloquent words and there are some preachers who are very very eloquent aren't they and they will perhaps take you in but you see without the genuineness in their faith without the genuineness in their belief, their even very eloquent words will be proved to be very empty words. So then, Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, in that passage speaks very much of the genuineness of your faith. The genuineness of your faith. And this is such an important truth. This is such an important concept. What is the genuineness of our faith? Or how genuine is our faith? Peter's writing there to those who have been spread abroad, haven't they? They've been dispersed through persecution. They've been called upon to suffer persecution. They've had to leave their homes. Uh, But as a result of the persecution, of course, we know it worked for the good of the gospel, that the gospel was taken far and wide by the dispersion and so Peter is commending them in many ways in that passage there in 1 Peter he's commending them for the genuineness of their faith what we see is that genuineness of faith comes only one way and that's from almighty God it's an important truth isn't it genuineness of faith not false faith not self-belief in a sense, not self-deception into believing that we have faith, but genuine faith comes only from God. 
Genuineness of faith cannot be manufactured. So many people sadly deceive themselves. Such faith based on self-deceit will, like the house on the sand, eventually, ultimately fall. So let's be careful. I know the teaching in this place and many other places only teach the truth. But we will come into contact with people who say, yes, I have a faith. And it's dangerous uh, just to accept that at face value, isn't it? We should be a bit like the Bereans, perhaps, and examine everything. It's such an important issue. See, the house on the sand initially looked exactly like, perhaps, the house on the rock. But it was only in the day of testing that the difference could be seen. Now, Jesus defines the characteristics of those who possess genuine faith. And perhaps we can just, if you've got your Bibles open, compare verses 20 to 23 with verses 24 to 26. Um, someone like to read verses 20 to 23? Anybody? He lifted his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So, would the world accept that advice? Would the world accept those standards? You see, what we see is what we rate as negative, poverty, weeping, hatred, reviling. Would we accept those as good? No, of course. We rate them as negative. But importantly, Christ rates them as positive, blessed, happy. Blessed are you who go through what we would describe as negative situations. Now perhaps someone can read 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So this is what the world would applaud, wasn't it? Rich, full, laughing, joking, a good reputation amongst men around. These are the things that the world values. These are the things that the world sees positive. But you see, what we rate as positive, Christ rates as negative. But woe to you. Woe to you, woe to you, all the way through. So here we have the definition of Jesus Christ of those who possess general faith, those who are blessed. So then the question comes as uh, time is whizzing by. Is the faith we profess genuine faith? The question, perhaps you might think, is obvious and can be answered immediately. But surely as... Uh, sensible, intelligent people. And we should, as Peter says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Give diligence to make sure your faith. He talks about adding to faith, virtue and that other list that we have there. So it's quite legitimate for us, isn't it? From time to time or 
uh, day by day just to check, just to examine our lives. The things we say, the things we do, do they reflect the things that Jesus calls us to do? Do our actions support our profession? And that's quite a broad-ranging challenge, isn't it? Do our actions support our profession? Again, you see, we have the warning from the Saviour himself, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Jesus' warning there, isn't it? The things that you say and do, the things that come out of your mouth, will produce fruits. Not necessarily all the time. Fruits that are in accordance with your profession. And so we have, in, in a sense, the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, we might say, formerly a man of faith. I put the word faith there in inverted commas because it was a faith in the law, it was a faith in the traditions of the Pharisees, it was a faith that was uh, founded met very much on human effort and it was no faith at all. But now, after his dramatic conversion, we see a man of God, a man with genuine faith, a man whose way has been turned round and who now is certainly a man who may call Lord, Lord, but is a man who will do the things that Jesus says. You see, Paul is now a man who can say, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, uh, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. This was a faith, a genuine faith, that's distinct from a faith based on works and effort. So, look at this question again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Seems a question, perhaps, with no quick answer. It's a difficult one to answer, isn't it? Because it's such a broad-ranging question, because it reaches into every aspect of our daily lives, our thoughts, our actions, our motivations. A question which is not seemingly easy to answer. It's a question that challenges, isn't it? If we look at it, it challenges our motives day by day. It challenges the quality of our faith. It asks the question, is it a faith that performs as well as professes? Profession in many ways is the easier part of the bargain, isn't it? It's the performance, the carrying out of the profession that is the challenge. Does it produce the works that Jesus calls for? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Only genuine faith to a truly repentant sinner will be able to produce the works of faith that meet with God's approval and ultimately his welcome. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy master's rest. What a wonderful day that will be. So then, Perhaps in closing, the key to answer this question fully and accurately is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and you know these words very well. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, 
it is the gift of God. That deals with the issue of genuine faith. Again, not of works, lest any man should bust. We know those and we quote those words so frequently, but very few people go on to add to that the next verse, which is in many ways so crucial uh, in considering our daily Christian lives. You see, Paul, uh, Paul goes on to write, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is the cure. This is the key, rather, to answering this question. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things? You see, if we are walking, as we read, if we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. If we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. So may it be as we go into the days that the Lord will spare to us, it may be that this question won't be addressed to us in the same sense, perhaps, in which we've looked at it tonight. May it be that we will have that hope to receive that well done, good and faithful servant.